Hey, look, a couple items. Number one of three, earmuffs. This is not suitable for work or children or probably you even, seriously. Two, this is not the show for you. You will not like it. You will not learn anything. You are better than this. It is never too late to stop listening. You would probably be happier listening to a show like Bandsplain. I get it. It's a good show. Three, here it comes. Are they gone yet? Good. It's just us now. We are talking Slayer. That's what we do. It's all we do, mostly. And today's topic, I think it's a pretty good one, is the Rain and Blood Tours Part 2. It's been an eventful few weeks here at Talking Slayer. Two weeks ago, free listeners got a chapter all about the Rain and Blood album, how it was made, how it was eventually released, some of the difficulties and controversies around it. Last week, Patreon supporters got a chapter about the Rain and Blood Tours Part 1. Pivotal, important, crucial chapter. A lot of things that you need to understand moving forward. Slayer did not have problems going into the Rain and Blood Tour. Slayer had a definite problem, singular though. Things are going to escalate rapidly. Worth knowing about. Anywho. Next week, you get more about the Rain and Blood Tours. Very eventful, very formative experiences. But for now, every week I tell you a story about Slayer in chronological order, breaking down the history of the thrashiest of the big four thrash bands. Hey, you don't need to hear this. You can skip to the four-minute mark. Or maybe you do need to hear this. Here is how I would like you to think about the show. I know, I know, I know there are certain things you're supposed to do if you're creating a persona as a media host. You're supposed to develop the impression that, like, hey, I'm just like you, but I have better access and maybe some arcane knowledge and understanding. Now watch me smile and do my little dance. End quote. And you're supposed to act like you're the kind of person that the audience wants to give a big hug. And probably by now, as you know, I don't do that. To paraphrase Blackie Lawless, more on him soon, and Ray Charles, and Joe Armstead, and Nick Ashford, and Valerie Simpson, I don't need no hug. But I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters. It sure does make me happy that you are listening. I am glad to see you today. I see you. Here is how I would like you to think of the show, if you have not sought it off already. Think of it this way. It is nighttime. We are out in the woods. You were walking along. You saw a little flicker of light off in the darkness. You followed it. You have wandered off the path. You found a clearing in the dark woods, and that is where we are. We are in that clearing, sitting around the fire. We're passing around the bottle, and I am talking to my friends about Slayer. 
There are no dorks or posers or jags here. That's jags, jags with a J. It's short for jagoff, which in my native land of Pittsburgh is the worst possible kind of person you can be. Geeks and nerds, you're welcome. Metal geek, I'm certainly one of those. But no assholes here. Just good people. I want the audience to be smaller by the time I finish this show. I want it to be just me and a hundred people who are, in their own way, cool. Because many people are, in ways that most others do not understand, cool. And if you are a Slayer fan, that's probably you. So that is what this is. Have a seat, friend. We're talking Slayer. Chapter 18. Blood on the Road. In the mid-80s, rock and roll was about to rip free from its moorings. Arena-sized metal and rock bands routinely played 10-minute solos. Iron Maiden, once a leading metal band, performed the entire, plodding, 15-minute song, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, two tours in a row. I seen them do that shit. There was a lot of boring stuff going on in the name of rock and roll. Even metal bands were guilty of it. Groups like Slayer were rewriting the parameters of extreme metal, how to play it, and how to react to it. They had help. Some surprisingly diverse bills saw metal and hardcore merging into one bigger, badder subculture. With the recording on Rain and Blood wrapped, the band had played an April hometown show at the Los Angeles Olympic Auditorium, which was a boxing arena with a capacity near 10,000. On November 7th, after the album was out, Slayer returned. Opening that concert were bands from opposite ends of the spectrum. Their hardcore friends in DRI and major label Hesher's Metal Church. SST Junior Varsity Hardcore Band Blast, which briefly would feature uh, Allison Chain's replacement singer William Duvall, and also Overkill, another major label act that straddled traditional metal and thrash. Each of those bands brought its own diverse constituency, and the floor became a general admission massacre. In those days, mohawks and mullets did not mix much, or well. In recent months, Bon Jovi had shot the famous video for Living on a Prayer at the venue. When Slayer played, bodies went flying too. No wires necessary. DRI frontman Kurt Brecht wrote in his memoir, Notes from the Nest, he wrote, That pit that night was insanity at its finest. Skinheads and long-haired metalheads thrashed together with the punks in a frenzy of sour-smelling, sweaty, head-walking, stage-diving, chicken-fighting mayhem. Tattooed, shirtless skins walked the circle, waiting for someone to bump into one of them so they could break their jaw. The floor of the pit was a sweaty gray cement made even slicker by spilled beer. 
Now and then, some unfortunate soul fell in the muck, usually causing a pile-up. End quote. Now, with rain and blood on the streets, Slayer were ready to bring that California brand of crazy to the rest of the country. Overkill, who, as you might know, were Jersey veterans with roots in punk, but they were currently teetering between Metal's A and B squads, Overkill stayed on as Slayer's support through a month-long headlining fall campaign. This is what Overkill, former Overkill drummer Rats Gates, told me. He said, Opening for Slayer was, without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever done, playing-wise. There was a standard that I never met, and I tried to meet their standard, that they're the fastest, heaviest band. Overkill's songs that were pretty fast, I found myself counting them off way faster, and it kind of ruined the songs. The song In Union We Stand, that was a rough one in front of the Slayer crowd in the later shows. Every time I thought, okay, I'm going to get a beer bottle in the head if I don't watch out. No one was ever afraid to go up to Overkill or any band who opened for Slayer and give them the finger and say, fuck you, give me Slayer, because they were there to see Slayer, end quote. When Slayer did hit the stage, the band achieved maximum velocity as quickly as possible and never slowed down. They were out for blood, and the increasingly common mosh pits provided it. No warming up while the crowd watched, no long solos. I remember seeing Judas Priest in like 19... 90, 91, give or take, the painkiller tour. They took the stage with a slow song, uh, and they warmed up for like four or five shows before they played a three-quarter speed version of painkiller. It wasn't fun. It wasn't awesome. And that's what a lot of metal bands were doing at the time. The traditional metal bands, the thrash guys, they put on a very different kind of show. In Slayer sets... Nothing was more emblematic of the new age of metal than the band's rejection of one of rock's most cherished conventions, the show-off spotlight guitar solo. Hanneman and King are all-time great players, but they were never that kind of guitar hero. This is what King told me about it. He said, I don't see me or Jeff as a focal point, for one. The way I look at us, the three front guys are Slayer. I don't need the attention for one thing. I don't consider myself like Zack Wild. Like I'd pay to go see Zack Wild solo for half an hour. I'm a piece of the puzzle. I'm not the superstar. Playing a long solo seems weird to me. End quote. Slayer kicked off the set with songs that, later in their career, would represent the climax of the night. Some evenings, most evenings, they would open, they'd open the set with raining blood and tear right into Angel of Death. This is the equivalent of Springsteen starting a show with Thunder Road and going straight into Born to Run. Lombardo would often kick off shows with raining blood and the three floor tom flam taps that signaled the entry into Headbanger Heaven. When they could... Slayer took the stage in a dense cloud of smoke, barely visible in a red and gray haze. 
Slowly, the cloud would dissipate, revealing the band, flanked by upside-down crosses made out of blinding white lights, raging through what would soon be recognized as one of the great metal songs of all time. Skates had a lot of respect, Rat Skates, Overkill's drummer, a lot of respect for Dave as a drummer. He said, Dave is such a hyper, over-the-top drummer. He was the only drummer I saw who visibly headbanged while playing the drums, and that's hard to do. He's got a huge physical command over his coordination. I've got to keep equating these guys to athletes. They're four Michael Jordans. That's where they could never be surpassed. Four Michael Jordans on a team are always going to win the championship. End quote. But, as we would see in coming years, Slayer's physicality did have its limits. King's famous armband and its hundreds of nails weighed around four pounds. Playing with the extra weight began making his forearm tendons unbearably tight, and it wore down his entire left arm. Around this time, he started taking the armband off after a few songs. On headlining shows, Slayer would play around 17 songs in something like 80 minutes. The 1986 set lists were much more like their later shows. There's a nameless bootleg from Chicago's Aragorn Ballroom that captures the November 14, 1986 set. Here's the set list. Raining Blood, Angel of Death, Die by the Sword, Praise of Death, Criminally Insane, Necrophiliac, Necrophobic, Captor of Sin, Reborn, Black Magic, Postmortem, Epidemic, Hell Awaits, Chemical Warfare, At Dawn They Sleep, Altar of Sacrifice, and finally Jesus Saves. Even on supporting shows, when they were the opening act, Slayer would still play almost the entire Rain and Blood album, except for the chaotic song Piece by Piece. That's a curious piece, no pun intended, with an escalator riff that sounds less like Slayer and more like a Dark Angel tune. The sets, regardless, started off with high energy and they never flagged. Most metal bands can't handle a set of pure speed. Once their youthful testosterone starts to wane, bands generally warm up with some slow songs where they start off with a couple blazing numbers and then they catch their breath with some mid-tempo tunes. Not Slayer. At that point in the tour, the band cap sets with Jesus Saves, closing the show with a ridiculously shredding solo, ending the set abruptly like the close of Rain's first side. Suddenly empty, the stages felt wrecked and desolate when Slayer were done playing. But Jesus Saves did not always close the set. Earlier in the tour, it did not play so well. In the first concerts following the album's long-delayed release, Slayer played a new song. That one, Jesus Saves. There's a great bootleg of this. I'll see if it's online. I'll post it in the show notes if it is. Araya tells the crowd, This is a track off our new album. It's a phrase we're all familiar with. I think it's one that I think you guys can say very well in a very authoritative voice. 
I want to hear everyone say, Jesus saves, end quote. <laughs> this is Tom telling a Slayer crowd that he wants to hear everybody say, Jesus saves. As you might imagine, it did not go well. The crowd boom back with a round of boos and whistles and catcalls. Araya, who is unaccustomed to being booed and sounds a little bit tipsy, says, What, you guys don't believe me? I want to hear you say it. Jesus saves. Couple people in the crowd shout Jesus saves. Most just hoot. So now Araya sounds like a pissed off gym teacher who is calling his class a pack of sissies. Listen, I want to get something straight here. Jesus saves is a phrase of two words. Two words only. Words that have a meaning that you don't have to accept, okay? So just say, Jesus saves. A few fans do say it, but on the tape, it sounds like they are a marked minority. After some more coaxing, the singer does manage to extract from the crowd a half-hearted shout for Christ. Doubtless, some of the fans went home, worried that the new album was going to be about God and shit. The uninformed reception does have some parallels to the Angel of Death controversy. Without the proper context, newcomers knew that Slayer were writing songs about Auschwitz and Jesus. That's all they knew. If Anthrax or Wayne Campbell had written Jesus Saves, they would have added not at the end in parentheses. While Slayer were back in New York, Slayer hung around Lemoore several nights. One night, Overkill headlined and Araya introduced the band. Before Overkill's set, they watched the opening act, Whiplash, which was another band from Jersey who had a pretty good drummer. Slayer's all-killer and no-filler sets from 86 even sound impressive on unmixed bootlegs. For my money, again, I know a lot of you love the Decade of Aggression album. That doesn't really do anything for me. I'll take a 1986-88 bootleg over that anytime. If you don't know those, track them down. In those sets, the band rushed from song to song like a train picking up momentum. Never had the cliche, you know, a lot of people at the time called Slayer Black Sabbath at 45 RPM. Never had that cliche been so appropriate. But apparently, that diesel engine was not running on all cylinders. As the tour moved east, miscues multiplied. King said that Lombardo would regularly wander off point which the rest of the band attributed to the drummer being distracted from fights with his wife. And if the drummer's distracted and he's not on point, that makes things really, really, really difficult for the band who are in the middle of an athletic musical performance. This aggravated King to no end. He said, and it winds up to the point where he wouldn't perform his gig correctly. Anything less than perfect is a waste of my time. I think about it as perpetuating the brand, so to speak. If you come through and you suck, those kids might not come to see you next time. End quote. Go back and underline that, folks. Anything less than perfect is a waste of my time. Carrie King. 
Let's all write that down. Let's try to live that. Hanneman and Carrie King roomed together, and they would find themselves brewing and stewing, creating a drunken feedback loop of resentment toward Mr. and Mrs. Lombardo. By the end of the first leg of the tour, the vat was boiling over. If tensions were high within the camp, then outside some real hatred was developing. Rick Sales, their manager, recalled religious groups picketing outside most of the venues, inspired by Tipper Gore's Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC. Then, as Slayer's Silver Eagle tour bus was cutting a swath through the country, Araya's parents started receiving phone calls. Someone was threatening Tom's life, and the calls kept coming. As December approached, the caller said he was going to kill Tom during Slayer's two-night stand at New York City's The Ritz. The Ritz was a hall with a capacity around 1,500. Now annoyance had turned into real concern. Tom's parents called Sales, who took it as a credible threat. Rick Sales added extra security to the venue. Years before handheld metal detectors were standard gear, the security guards had to pat down every single individual audience member. The security guards would report confiscating one gun. Sales also changed protocol for the band's arrival. The Ritz had an unusual entrance. Bands would normally, normally, enter through the front, coming in past the line. So the manager set up a diversion. The band never used limos, Slayer, not that kind of band. But sales arranged for an empty limo to arrive when the band actually entered on the other side of the building, and they climbed into the venue up a fire escape. Inside, extra plainclothes security staff were positioned throughout the venue. It was a satanic secret service. They also had extra muscle on stage. With a hulking chief named Big Charlie front and center, a line of five burly bouncers dispatched all stage divers with ease. These giant dudes would scoop them up and toss them back into a lake of long hair and leather. Slayer thrashed through their sets in a demonic fog, and the New York shows went off without an incident. As with the record company complications, the management let the artists concentrate on their performance. Later on, when I asked him about this incident, Araya told me, I didn't know about it. I just thought that it was odd that we had this extra security around us. And then finally, Rick Sales told me what was up. And that was it for now. The first, not the last, but the first leg of the Rain and Blood tour was done. Slayer were not home safe. Not yet. More from the Rain and Blood tours next week. Maximum gratitude. Maximum gratitude. Undisputed gratitude to the Slaytanic superfans who financially support this show, including, but not limited to, Vince Stigma Bloom, Ralph Severo, Dude of the Year, Northeastern Ohio Division, Daryl's Whammy Bar, 
Dude of the Year, Guitar Division, United States, Metal Matt Hinch, Father of the Year, Canadian Division, Ryan Dusso, Father of the Year, United States Division, David Jones, Dude of the Year, Central Ohio Division. Yens guys do more than your share to keep their show coming. Thank Yens very much. Give a little bit more and you too can make the list. Sign up at patreon.com slash slayerbook. Patreon.com slash slayerbook. Thank you for listening to Talkin' Slayer, a podcast and half-assed audio book by your pal Ferris. To support the show and learn more, visit patreon.com slash slayerbook. S-L-A-Y-E-R-B-O-O-K. Patreon.com slayerbook. No S on the end. Credits and crucial thanks. Podcast artwork is by Jason Shank of Midwest Authenticity Consultants. Unless otherwise noted, all the rad music is by Nige Savage, the aggressive perfecter, also of the awesome UK thrash band Chupacabra. Check them out. From the hit podcast Spanking It with Julio, the producer is Mitch Kramer, the spirit in black. The dog is Wolfie. Audio technical consultants are... Matt Wardlaw, The Tormentor, Forrest Gabbage of Southbound Tracks, codenamed Gemini, Jessica Baxter of the Paid in Puke podcast, and Stargate Pioneer and everyone at the Gunna Geek Network. Consultant for Audiovisual Affairs and Irish History is James Ferris of Massive Media. The beta test group is Vince Bloom, Craig Cohen, Steve O, your older brother Sam, Bruno McDonald, Jason Pettigrew, Outer Nowhere, Sue Madre, and Mike Olszewski. The Slatanic archivists are Jamie Walters, Tony Alberts, Spar Schmidt, Chris Bade, Paul from Dropgun, Paul from Slayerized, and Nicholas, the Slayer Collector. Ongoing thanks to metal mentors and radio dudes, including but not limited to Ed Rohr, Brian Biggs, Randy Fox, and Dean B. True. Additional Shingy, courtesy Captain Shum and the Concerned Party Lembe Squad. Expert consultation by Nate Runkle, the Catalyst, also of Yo, That's My John, good show. Howard H. Smith of Acid Rain and Talking Bullocks, a.k.a. the Captor of Sin. No Friender of the Thrash Metal Show and the When It Was Cool Podcast Network. And Ryan J. Downey, the Ghost of War, also of the Speak and Destroy Podcast. Thanks. I heart ends. I heart ends all. A lot. Partial list of people that I wish were still here. Sumner J. Ferris. Nora Ferris. Vera Lehane. Ron Forsyth, Lori Martin, Audrey Sapizi, Don Olszewski, and Tom Morrissey. Jeff Hanneman too, obviously, but I did not know him personally. If you have a different opinion, you are right and I am wrong. If you have questions or you want to rap, you can find me online. At Twitter, I am Slayerbook, no S. On Insta, I am Slayerbooks, with an S on the end. 
on Facebook, Slayer Book, no S. Buy the book and you can find an email address in it. The book Slayer 66 and Two Thirds, a metal band biography, the 2023 postmortem update, is published by 6623 Press. It is a very reasonably priced paperback and a very cheap Kindle ebook. 6623 Press makes useful, reasonably priced, unconventional, creator-owned books about popular culture, success, and other cool stuff. This podcast is a production of 6623 Press and Mostly Things. The easiest place to find my books is Amazon, but select retailers have them too. If you're a retailer and you don't have them, but you want them, hit me up. Thank you for listening. More next time. Peace. Pee Wee Herman, R.I.P. I'm not sorry. Meh!